It is time for Spooky South Coast. It's Saturday night. It's time to get strange and unusual and weird. And we are going to do that tonight with our guest, Dr. Scott Kolbaba. We'll be talking about medicine and the paranormal. We'll be talking about some of these strange experiences that Dr. Kolbaba has had in his years as a physician and also some of the other stories he's collected in his new book, Physicians Untold Stories. We're going to get into some of these weird stories, but maybe you have some that you want to share yourself, and you'll be able to do that tonight during the show as well as we get ready for episode, I think it's 496. I really... I legitimately don't know this time. Usually it's just, it's just stick, but this time I really don't know. So I believe it's episode 496 of Spooky South Coast, and it starts right now. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor. Matt Moniz is off tonight, and Stephanie Burke is off tonight. Just you and I, Matt, doing it old school style, going back to the first couple of months of the show when it was just us and the audience. At least we think there was an audience then. We're not totally sure. We don't, we don't have the data that proves that fact, but we got the occasional phone call. We got the occasional email. So there were, there were people there, but uh, we want to say hi to everybody that's out there tonight, especially out there in the chat room. Good evening to everybody watching live on Spooky TV, which you can get to by going to SpookySouthCoast.com or by downloading the free Spooky South Coast app, which you can get for Android or iOS. So you can watch the show while it's going on. You can see if I pick my nose during the show. You can see if I have to cough a hundred times like I have the last couple weeks, which I'm Already up to the first one for tonight. We'll see what happens the rest of the way. I'm already feeling it again. What is this? Is this allergies? I don't know what this is. But uh, we will we will foster our way through that. But we're going to, as I mentioned uh, in the cold open, we're going to be talking tonight with Dr. Scott Kolbaba about his new book, Physicians' Untold Stories. We're going to hear some of these strange and unusual tales from the medical profession. And maybe you've had some sort of strange medical experience. Maybe you've had something that's happened to you in the hospital, or you've had a loved one that has visited you, maybe, who had passed on while you were getting ready for surgery. All these different things are going to come into play. Premonitions, it'll be all on the table tonight when we talk with our guest in just a little bit. And uh, in just a few moments, we're going to be talking about the, the week and weird. We're going to be talking about all the strange news of the week with Melody Knapp, our paranormal news correspondent. But before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that next weekend we will not be on the air because it will be the Provincetown Paracon that Stephanie and I will be at, which you can still get tickets to by going to provincetownparacon.com. Tickets are still available. They've been running all kinds of great deals, so don't just go to the website. Make sure that you follow Provincetown Paracon on social media as well so that you can catch some of the great deals that will be coming your way. And there is a whole bunch of media that's coming up for the Paracon this week. Uh, Sam's going to be pr- promoting a bunch of uh, promoting on a bunch of different media outlets, newspapers, magazines, radio stations, all of that. So make sure that you get your tickets now before they're gone. 
and we'll try and give away another pair again tonight. You know, nobody called in and won those tickets last week that are for the uh, Saturday event portion. Nobody? Nobody called in? We, we had you wait till the end of the show. We asked you a trivia question about the show. It wasn't that hard. But nobody called in. So we'll, we'll give away a couple of pairs tonight. Sam gave us a whole bunch to give away. He was very nice to get, and we haven't been doing it. So we're going to have to do it. And I have some ideas about how to do it on social media this week. But you got to earn them. You're going to have to promote them. You're going to have to promote the event for us. But don't worry, because here's how it's going to work. We're going to share all the Provincetown Paracon social media, all the Facebook posts, anything else. Share that all. So follow it right now on social media, Provincetown Paracon. And every time that they put something out, every time Sam puts something out, I want you to share it and tag me in it. And then everybody who tags me in it, I'm going to put everybody's name into a hat, and I'll do it on Facebook Live so you can see that it's you know it's legitimate. And uh, we'll do this on Wednesday night. On Wednesday night, so between now and Wednesday, as many posts as Province on Paracon puts out, as many that are already out there, you don't have to wait for fresh ones. You can take any of the other posts that are out there, as long as it's not you know, promoting a sale or anything that's over. Just share it, promote it, tag me in it. Make sure you tag me in it, Tim Weisberg, and I will write everybody's name down, and I'll put it into a hat, and on Wednesday night, I'll go on Facebook Live, and I'll pull it out. The uh, winner, I mean. It's a good thing I stopped for that cough to have a moment to reflect on what I just said. So on Facebook Live, I will pull out the name of the winner from a hat. That's what I'm pulling out on Facebook Live. I don't want to get shut down. So that will be the, the the time for that. So make sure you do that. But we'll also give away a pair, or maybe even two, at the end of the night tonight. So stay tuned to the show because you don't know what kind of trivia question we're going to ask you based on tonight's show. All right, so before we get into it with our guest, Dr. Scott Kolbaba, let's get a little bit weird with The Weekend Weird. Spooky South Coast presents The Week in Weird with Paranormal News Correspondent Melody Knapp. And good evening, Melody. How are you? I am doing great. How are you doing, Tim? We are spooktacular. So, uh, what do you have for us this week? All right, so I've got two pretty different uh, things to talk about. So first, uh, we have an article about why are so many art exhibitions fascinated by the account, um, posted by the Irish Times on how the present age of anxiety has triggered a new interest in the paranormal um, exhibit-wise. Uh, this article dove into the progression of paranormal perspectives um, artistically throughout trying times in history. Uh, a rise in exhibits focusing on the supernatural and occult stay true to the pattern um, artists have taken throughout the years. In other words, uh, with our present age of anxiety, with everything going on in the world, it comes as no surprise that the resurgence of interest in the mysterious beyond is now being displayed artistically throughout the world. Um, and uh, just a little tidbit, the U.S., uh, you know, NSA memo from 1977 at the height of the Cold War does detail the CIA report uh, on psychology, like, experiments that they did that pretty much says grief is particularly associated with such phenomena as an in interest in the supernatural and beyond and stuff. So, 
kind of makes sense as to why there's a rise in that. Right. I mean, and I don't know. I, I really think that a lot of these experiences are emotional. And I oh, think yeah. that being in an emotional place can open you up to having more of expe- more experiences, more interest, good or bad. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that in some ways, you know, you have to be in a place of a little bit of vulnerability sometimes to have these things happen. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And just, it, it makes sense, especially to us that are pretty well versed in the field. Um, it, it makes sense with that emotion and tact, uh, why you'd have a rise in that. So. It's funny because I was watching earlier today, uh, you know, just flipping through the channels, Ghostbusters 2 was on, and they're talking about, you know, the mood slime, the, the way that the, the, the paranormal aspect of what was going on was being affected by the emotions of people. And I was like, that's where I got that theory from. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, it's all coming together. Got it from Ghostbusters too. That makes perfect sense. All right, so so you said you had another story for us too. Yes, I do, and this one we actually had a lot of participation in um, on Facebook, which was really nice. So this one was um, why the dying see their deceased relatives before they go, and it was actually a blog post written by Nurse One Nine Four Six 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 on WordPress.com. And this pretty much described the author's experience with her mother's passing. Uh, in short, her mom claimed to see her deceased husband uh, at the very end, and although her vocal capabilities were stripped away from her, she did appear to be having a conversation with someone everyone assumed to be her husband, um, you know, right before she went. And we did have a lot of people chime in saying that they experienced the same thing or had a relative that also experienced the same thing. Um, and someone even mentioned, you know, this is a term called affection, and it's very well known that, you know, they're called spirit guides to help you on into the other world. So, Yeah, I, I don't know if I've ever, uh, I don't know if I've ever, like, felt like I had a spirit guide around me. I don't think I've ever felt like I've had somebody that's always been present around me that has been kind of guiding me in the right direction. Melody, do you feel like you have somebody like that around you? No, no, I can't say that I do, but it, it, it would be nice or comforting, I guess you could say, to think that maybe family members would be there at the end to help you transition. Um, but, I mean, I can't do that myself, so. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I feel like I've, uh, like there's a lot of people that do, uh, you know, a lot of people that do feel like when they, I, I, I don't want to say it's, it's fate or destiny, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to say that it's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to avoid the G word here, but a lot of yeah. people feel like it's, you know, in some cases it's not God that makes them make certain directions, but that uh, make certain uh, choices and, and, and go in certain directions, but they feel like it's a loved one that's guiding them. And I don't know, I feel like your loved ones would kind of want to have you foster your own path and exactly. just kind exactly. of be there to, to lend support if that was the case. That's what I would hope as well. I would hope they wouldn't guide me a specific direction and that I would, my free will would allow for such paths to just pave their own way. And, and you mentioned the idea of there being uh, an entity, uh, being something that would help kind of guide people over to the other side too. And that's something that I've always been fascinated with is there's always been the idea of the psychopomp. I don't know if you're familiar with the psychopomp. No, no, not. So a psychopomp is essentially a being uh, that, in, from from Greek, from Greek mythology, that would be the one who would ferry people who had just died into the other side. Gotcha. So it's yeah. kind of like when you pass on this this entity, this being, this this Greek being would. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I don't know how they fit in the realm of the gods. They weren't they weren't quite gods, but they would kind of it would be their job to bring you to the afterlife, whether it be good or bad. 
So they would be the ones that would kind of they would they didn't lend judgment like like uh, you know we think that our gods and angels do now, but they would they would kind of talk to you about your life as you were transitioning into that next world. And I think that that's going to fit in with tonight's guest because we're going to be talking about people that you know are passing away in, in hospitals and in medical facilities. And I'm sure that a lot of these beings that might be around them might fit into that same mythology of psychopomps. Absolutely, and uh, as always, it has been a pleasure. <laughs> yes, and you have a great night, and uh, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks because we're not going to be on next week. So, and, and good luck next week at the convention. Hope you have Stephanie. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Have Bye, a, guys. Have, have a great night. night. That is our Paranormal News correspondent, Melody Knapp. She joins us to give us the week in weird, and if you follow along with Spooky South Coast on social media, if you... Follow us on Facebook, on Twitter. We share these stories all week long, and, and you can comment on them, and we'll work your comments into Melody's reports as well. So that's the easiest way to follow along with our stories. It's just by following us on social media, and you'll see the stuff that we are posting. And I don't know. I've, I've always been fascinated with the idea of psychopomps. I, you know, I, I had an idea a couple of years ago to write a book about them and kind of talk about how the concept – even though Greek mythology hasn't really survived, you know, we kind of look at it as being an archaic belief system now, and now we have a lot of uh, focus on monotheism, so we don't give credence to a lot of these other types of beings. But I think that there are still a lot of those stories out there. There are, except now, instead of it being some strange being that shows up to foster you on your trip to the other side, now it's your past loved ones who come around and who are standing around you as you are on your deathbed and who are waiting to carry you over to the other side or, or to, to cross you over and guide you over to the other side. So I think that that would be a big part of what we'll be talking about in just a few minutes with our guest, Dr. Scott Kolbaba. But there's other weird stories that are associated with it as well, too. And what I find interesting about this is we're talking about the medical field. We're talking about people who are coming from a scientific background that maybe they went into this with one mindset, but the work that they do takes on such a spiritual aspect that they can't help it. They can't help but start to believe in this stuff. And so the more that they do and the more that they open themselves up to that, the more they're probably realizing the things that are going on. And that, I think, is... We'll get into that for sure with Scott in just a few moments, but I feel like that is the big aspect of this, is how does having the... We can talk about all these stories, and we can talk about how interesting it is, and how just just collecting these stories and and, and hearing these stories is going to change the way that we look at death and everything like that, but how does it change the medical professional? How does it change the person that is watching other people have these experiences. That's what I think is the most fascinating part about this. And that's what we will certainly talk about coming up in just a few minutes. And if any time during the show you want to call in, the number is 508-996-0500 or 877-996-1420 if you would like to join in. And I'm seeing some people are already sharing uh, some of our po- some of the Pro- Provincetown Paracon posts. Uh, you can do that. Just remember that when you share... The Provincetown Paracon posts, tag me in it. Make sure you tag me in the post, or at least in the comments, and then that way there we can enter your name into the drawing that will be happening on Wednesday night. 
And Sam gave us a, a bunch of tickets to give away. He was very kind to donate a whole bunch of them for us to give away through the show. So, like I said, we'll give away some later on tonight, but then we'll, we'll have a couple pairs to give away on Wednesday night. So, you know, definitely make sure you keep sharing. And, and it's not a one-time only entrance type of thing. You can put it in as many times as you want. As many times as you want to share it and tag me in it, I'll try and make sure that I keep up with all of them and make sure that you have the adequate number of, uh, of entries that will literally go into a hat. Because I have a hat in the trunk of my car that I will put them into. And, and Corey, uh, I love you, Corey. You're trying to figure it out, but you're just tagging me in other people's posts. you got to share the post. There he goes. He's, he's got it now. There we go. All right. And <laughs> so we already have people sharing the post, so that's good. Already have entrance for the Province Sound Paracon tickets. Matt, are you going to enter? I know normally you can't enter, but if you want to enter, I'll let you enter. Since you get, or you can just have Saturday night off next week, either way. But if you want, if you want to go down to Provincetown, it's it's a little bit of a hike, but it's worth it. And it's, it's a nice ride. Oh, I should turn the microphone on. It's a nice ride. It is. It is. It's, and it's fantastic. You'll be there right before mm-hmm. the start of the season. <coughs> You'll have the entire Provincetown. We'll have the entire Provincetown to ourselves. So. It'll be a great time. So even if you don't win, make sure you get tickets because you're going to want to come down and party with us. Especially you want to party with Stephanie and I because ain't no party like a spooky South Coast party. But the spooky par- Sp- South Coast party does stop. Does it? At some point we get tired and we have to go to bed. That's right. Yeah, we're not we're not as party animals as we used to be. All right, well, let's get into the discussion tonight with our guest. Dr. Scott Kolbaba is an internist in private practice in Wheaton, Illinois. He graduated from University of Illinois College of Medicine with honors and did his residency at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago and at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He has been awarded membership in the Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Medical Society and has been featured in Chicago Magazine as a top doctor in internal medicine. And he joins us on the line right now. Let me lock him in here. Good evening, Dr. Kobaba. You with us? Yes, I am, Tim. Uh, great, great to hear from you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thanks. Well, my first question is: uh, with you being a doctor and all, does this look infected? Does this, does this look? Uh, what, what did you say? I'm, I'm does, sorry. I said, does this look infected? Uh, I don't think so. I figure. I, I figure you gotta. You probably have to deal with that a lot. You know, just I, like I we, think you're okay. We have to go and hear. Uh, you know, whenever we go anywhere, we have to hear everybody's ghost stories. I can only imagine what it must be like as a doctor to have to hear everybody's medical ailments and problems. Well, you know, I, I love what I'm doing, and I've always wanted to be a doc, and uh, uh, I've been doing this for about 35 years, and I, I, uh, I hear of all kinds of ailments, and and uh, try to do some some good occasionally. And it seems like, you know, being a doctor, uh, as I was talking before, as Matt was getting you on the line, I don't know how much of it you heard, I would assume that you spent a lot of your education, at least, and in, in a lot of your life, very based in science and very based in, in factual and empirical data that you could look, see, hold on to, research. I'm assuming that you entered into the medical field with that type of a mindset. Uh, exactly, and everyone does. And what's so interesting about the the stories that I've run across is that they are not based on science. These are things to you that the doctors couldn't explain scientifically. And when I started researching this book and talking, I talked to about uh, 200 doctors, interviewed them, and, and uh, I said, you know, one of the questions I asked was, uh, you know, have you had any experiences you can't explain scientifically? And lots of them did. And I included the ones that uh, gave me goosebumps or, or made me 
tear up in, in, with emotion uh, to, to be part of the book. And the idea for the book must have come from you having your own experiences in that regard. Yeah, it did. It, I had a few really interesting and strange experiences, and then for some reason doctors started to come to me with their experiences that they hadn't talked with anyone about. And uh, after collecting about four or five of these, I thought, I've got to write these down. These are just amazing experiences that uh, they don't talk about. And doctors don't talk about this stuff. See, I find that very interesting because you would think that when you are working in that field and having these experiences, probably the only other person you could talk to and, and, and get this off your chest and discuss this with would be another doctor that has had a similar experience. Right. Yeah, you, you'd think so. But, you know, doctors, uh, we, we talk, we, we're actually pretty superficial. We talk about the uh, potassium levels and, uh, you know, whose gallbladder we had to take out and, and those kinds of things. And, and very rarely do we get into some of this deep uh, spiritual stuff. And it was interesting for me to, to really learn a lot about the docs in, in talking about these, these stories. It was uh, a really eye, an eye-opener. And, you know, I think the docs don't talk about it because they're afraid... But if they do, uh, they'll be criticized and, and made fun of. You know, you saw a vision, you had a dream about a patient. Uh, you know, those are things that aren't scientific and, and aren't supposed to happen, but they do happen. And I don't know how much of this would be something that would be a discussion you would have, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis with colleagues in the field, but maybe in the research for this book it came up. Do a lot of doctors maintain a spiritual belief, or does the work and, and what you have to go through on a day-to-day -day basis kind of affect whether or not you can believe in there being something beyond this world? You know, I think, um, I think a lot of doctors have a very deep spirituality. I was, I was surprised about that. Many doctors don't belong to an organized religion, don't go to church, but they are very deeply spiritual, and I was I was literally shocked that some of these doctors, who sometimes were a little crusty and and uh, uh, you know doctors that that didn't seem to be uh, that uh, uh, all spiritual, really were. And I, I it was a real eye opener for me to see some of the doctors and and the, the stuff that I learned about them and what they did uh, on the side and helping people and and contributing to. Uh, uh, doing um, uh, prayer sessions with uh, kids in jail and things like that. It was just, it was mind, mind, mind boggling and, and uh, mind expanding. Because, you know, as a doctor, you have people who are in dire situations and things take a turn for the good, and, and everybody will talk about, you know, oh, it's a miracle. You know, it's a miracle that this happened. And, and sometimes I feel like calling it a miracle kind of shortchanges what the, what the medical profession has been able to do for you. But at the same time, there also has to be that power of, of faith and belief and positivity, at least, just to help you carry yourself through the process emotionally. Even if the power of positivity isn't a real thing, even if it can't have a, a, a physical effect on you or what's happening, at least staying positive helps you to stay in the right mindset to get care. Well, we always, you know, we always see the, the things that uh, surprise us when a person suddenly uh, turns the corner and, and you thought they were dying and, and they, they don't. I just had an individual we sent uh, to a nursing home uh, with, in hospice to die. He had uh, multiple uh, pneumonias. This is like his third pneumonia that he had in the last uh, maybe month. And uh, he was going downhill. He finally said, I've, I've given up. I, I don't want to, you know, live anymore. His family agreed that he'd been through so much and it was just time to let him go. So he stopped all of his medicine. We sent him off to, uh, to a hospice uh, program in a nursing home. And about a week later, he was uh, hungry, eating, and back to his old self. 
So, you know, we, uh, we run into these situations all the time, and, and sometimes if you're, if you're negative, um, uh, things don't work out as well. And I, 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 I think you have to maintain the positivity in, in medicine uh, for, because these things do happen. When you were getting involved in medicine, you know, in the early days of, of your studies, did it take a lot of – was it hard for you to kind of play into other people's beliefs? You know, as paranormal investigators, one of the things that we have to deal with when we go into helping somebody with a maybe a haunted location is we have to take their belief set into account. So mm-hmm. we can't just go in there – you know, putting out our own theories of everything. We have to take into account what their spiritual beliefs may be. Did that also enter into you in treating patients that you had to kind of take into account uh, where they were coming from from a spiritual basis? You know, it's almost never. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this, this book, and that is uh, we almost never get into the spiritual realm with, with patients and talk about their belief system and, and so forth. And I think that plays such a big role in, in healing and, and helping people recover from an illness. And, and doctors uh, uh, are hesitant to talk about that. Patients uh, r- rarely bring it up. I, I, I think in the last 30 years since I've been in practice, I've had a handful of people that have talked about their spirituality. And I think it's a very important aspect of healing and taking care of people, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, to open up that channel so that doctors feel more comfortable and patients feel more comfortable about talking to doctors. Uh, and, and so they realize that doctors do have a spiritual side to them that's sometimes very deep and profound. And I think uh, if patients and doctors talk to each other about their spiritual beliefs, I think we can accomplish a lot more than just uh, what we do with pills and, and IV medications. Do you, but do you think that kind of the prevailing mindset from other people and the reason why they don't talk about it is maybe because they want to see the doctor be detached from that? They want to see the doctor be more based in, in, in empirical science and, and more based in uh, results that can be shown instead of things that have to be believed? I don't know if they want to. I think they, they think that doctors are so scientific that to bring up something spiritual would, would uh, be um, uh, scoffed at. I, I, think that's, I think that's the real reason. I don't think they, they know that doctors are as spiritual as they are. And again, that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring out some of these stories. Well, for yourself, I mean, I assume that there was uh, probably some things that happened in the course of your career where you started to feel this way, but was there anything in your life before becoming a doctor where you thought it might have been something strange, unexplained, paranormal? Did you ever have any of these type of experiences before becoming a doctor? You know, I, I can't think of, of um, a lot of experiences, but, you know, when I, when I, when I think back, I've had some, some strange coincidences that have happened to me that I thought were coincidental that really weren't, uh, I'm convinced now, after writing this book and talking with the doctors, that, that really weren't coincidences. And, and uh, um, I, I, can, I can tell you a few if you're, if you're interested. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the most significant one was before I, I became a doctor. I was, uh, I was actually an economics major in college, and I was trying to get into medical school. And I had a family by this point, and I, I really had only one more year that I would, was going to give myself to, to get into medical school and take the prerequisites. And, and one of the prerequisites I needed to get was organic chemistry. And I had a job. I was working full-time during the day, and uh, uh, organic chemistry was offered at night in the same town that I was, I was uh, living. And so that was great. I was able to you know, enroll in that class. 
I showed up uh, in the in the bookstore, bought a, a book. There were there were about three shelves of books uh, on, on the, in the bookstore. I went to the class for the first night, and there were about three kids in the class. And the professor walked in, and I thought, boy, I'll, I'll be able to get some some personal attention. The professor walked in and said, we're canceling the class. There's there are not enough students. And I was heartbroken because I thought this is the end of my career. I'm never going to go into medicine because I will never be able to get organic chemistry, and I've got to get a, now a real job and, and uh, get on with my life. But I discovered there was another uh, class in downtown Chicago, which is about 70 miles away. So the next day I drove down and I waited in line uh, to register for the organic chemistry class at night. And by the time I got to the front of the line, uh, the registrar said, I'm, I'm very sorry, we have one class that's uh, totally uh, filled. The next class we opened up just because we, were, we had such a demand. Now we have 10 or 11 students that are on the waiting list for spots and, and you won't be able to get in. And I was just heartbroken. So I said to the registrar, where, you know, who makes the final decision on, on allowing people to get into the class? And they said, the professor does. So I said, where can I find the professor? And then she said, we'll go to the third floor, room 301. So I ran up the, the stairs, stumbling probably half the way, and there was a whole room of, of students there trying to get into organic chemistry. And I must have looked like a real sad sap. Uh, sad sack uh, to the uh, to the receptionist there, and I said, if I can just talk with the professor for just two minutes, uh, and she said, okay, go go ahead and wait in the ante room, and and much to the consternation of all the students that were waiting, I <laughs> walked ahead of everyone, and was I sat uh, in the little ante room outside the the professor's uh, uh, office. In the office, two professors were talking about one of the problems they were having, and that is they'd opened up a class, they had no books, no books for the class. And what they uh, had done was, was call the publisher. They, they searched all the school, local schools. No one had any organic chemistry books. And I, I heard the conversation. I don't think I was supposed to hear the conversation, but the door was so thin I was sitting outside and I heard everything they were talking about. And then the one professor shook the hands of the other one, and, and uh, they, they walked, one walked out. And the one signaled for me to come in, and I, I told him my, my sad story that I needed to get organic chemistry, otherwise I couldn't get into medical school, and I'd be a uh, failure in life and so forth. He said, I'm very sorry. We have two classes that are filled. We have uh, ten on the waiting list, and you'll, you just can't get into the class this year. And so though, I realized this was a desperate time, and I needed a desperate measure. So I said to him, if I can get you books for the class, will you let me in? And by this point, my heart was in my throat. I was, it was, you know, I was pounding like crazy. And he, all of a sudden, he became suddenly very interested. And his eyebrows went up, and, and he looked at me, and there was a long pause. So he looked at me, and, and he said, Could you get me 30? And I waited for a second, and I said, More. <laughs> and there was a long pause. And by this point, my heart's way up in my throat. And, I, you know, this is my life flashing in front of me. And after the longest pause, it seemed like hours, he said, you're in. <laughs> I told him where the books were. Uh, they got the books for the class. I got into organic chemistry. And I thought for a long, the longest time that that was just a strange coincidence. That I happened to be there at the right time in the right spot, and I was the only one that could help them, and they were the only ones that could help me. But in thinking back, I think that's, that was more than a coincidence. I think there was something that directed me to that, that, that place at that very time when I could help them and they could help me, and that uh, otherwise I wouldn't have been an, you know, a doctor. I wouldn't have gone into medicine. That was that was the end of my career. Well, I mean, I, I guess that's certainly something kind of intervening. Uh, was was that though a situation where? I mean, I'm sure there's been multiple times in your career where you did have to kind of 
give into faith a little bit and to think that, listen, I just got to trust that things are going to work out. I just have to trust that all I can do is what I can do. And then whatever else happens is placed in the hands of whatever, whether you want to call it God or fate or destiny or what have you. You know, you kind of do have to give yourself into this higher power at some point. Yes, and, and, and I didn't realize that until I wrote this book that 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 was probably more than just a coincidence, that that was probably a higher power that was helping and guiding me uh, to, to get into this career. So now once you're in the career and, and you're going about the work and, again, you know, keeping a very scientific approach to everything, at some point there must be some little story or at least there must have been at least one turning point where you said, okay, this is, there's something more to this. There's something else that's kind yeah. of guiding things along here. Yeah, and, and there was, and, and the, the, the one story that, that really got my attention and really touched my heart was um, I was taking care of an individual <clears throat> who was uh, traveling. I think he was in Arkansas or, or, or Alabama, and he was traveling, and he called me up from, from uh, down south, and he, he said, I, I've got this abdominal pain, right upper ab- abdominal pain. I'm nauseated. I came after I was eating, and I'm really sick. And I, he said, what should I do? And I said, well, you better go to the emergency room. And so he went to the emergency room, and about two hours later, I got a call from the ER doc. And he said, I'm seeing your patient here. He's got abdominal pain. It sounds like gallbladder, but we got a gallbladder ultrasound, which is normal. His labs were normal. He's, we gave him some narcotic medication. He's fine now, so we're sending him home. But, uh, you know, he'll want to see you when, you when he gets back to Chicago. So uh, a couple of days later, uh, he was in the office, and I was seeing him, and it sounds just like gallbladder, right up for abdominal pain, nausea, uh, uh, following eating, and uh, I got some fancy gallbladder tests and some additional blood work. Everything was normal. And as you know, one of the things that's real frustrating for doctors is if, if you have a patient that's, that's reasonably sick and you can't diagnose what they have, it's very, very frustrating. And I think I saw him again one time in the office and still having this abdominal pain, but we had gotten a number of other studies, and everything was perfectly normal. And a couple of days later, I woke up in the morning, and I had this, this overwhelming feeling that he needed a lung scan. Now, it didn't make any sense with abdominal pain why I would get a lung scan, but I just couldn't get it out of my mind. And I called him up, which is unusual, that I would call a person up at 7.30 in the morning and say, you know, listen, I, 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 I just woke up with the idea that you needed a lung scan, and, and I know it sounds a little strange, but, but uh, I think we need, to, we need to do this. And he said, well, I can't do it today because I'm flying out to Denver, and uh, I'll, I'll be busy and, and running around getting packed and so forth. And I said, what time's your flight? And he said, 2 o'clock. So I said, if I can get the lung scan in first thing in the morning, will you, will you go for it? Well, you know, uh, if, if we can get in fairly soon. And he said, it was a long pause, and, and all, finally he said, yes, uh, I'll, 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 if you think it's important, I'll, I'll do it. So I called the radiology department, and I said, I need to get a lung scan in. And they said, well, the next one we have is two days from now. And I said, no, no, I need one urgently. And uh, uh, finally, after much pleading and arm twisting, he said, okay, just send them over. So um, uh, Taylor went over to the uh, x-ray department, got the lung scan. About an hour later, I get a call from the radiologist, and he said, nice call, Scott. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, it's a nice call ordering that lung scan. He had a massive pulmonary embolus, a blood clot in his lung, sitting on the diaphragm on the right side, which is why he had abdominal pain and not chest pain. I got goosebumps because that was really, really strange that, that you know, this was a life-threatening condition. Had he flown out that day, I put him right in the hospital, but had he flown out that day, he probably would have died because he would have had other blood clots mm-hmm. and that would have, it probably would have been fatal. So that got me thinking there's something else that 
uh, was working here uh, other than just uh, pure science. And I couldn't get that out of my mind. And that's kind of what started me thinking that I, you know, whether I wonder whether other doctors have had similar experiences. And about that same time, two other doctors came forward with experiences that they had that were really unusual and strange. And I thought to myself, I'm going to start writing these down and see if I can make this into a book. And so I started interviewing other doctors, and I was, I was shocked that, that lots of doctors have had experiences uh, that are really unusual, strange, that they can't explain scientifically, but they don't tell anyone. And I included the ones that, that really touched my heart in the, in the book. And, but there are lots of other stories that were, you know, minor stories that, that don't, don't make you, they don't give you goosebumps. But, uh, I was, I was amazed at the number of stories that are out there that we don't talk about. So was it, it, did you get the feeling like with those experiences, uh, that it might be some kind of, uh, a medical intuition, some sort of something that was from within you and the other doctors that had similar experiences, some sort, I don't want to call it psychic, but some sort of, uh, just extra perception that you're able to pick up on, or do you feel like you were being guided into making those decisions by an outside force? Well, you know, you, you can you can say that you know I, I've got a lot of experience, and, and maybe this was a, you know, my intuition and, and so forth. But I think I think it was something else. And and some of the doctors have had experiences that were totally uh, not related to intuition at all. One of the initial stories that I heard was a story from from uh, Dr. Steve Heim who was an orthopedic surgeon and a trauma surgeon who was skiing in Colorado. And he was skiing with his wife and his wife's sister. They got up on top of a, a big mountain that they were going to ski down. A blizzard hit at the time. They could hardly see anything uh, in front of them. And the temperature dropped. The snow was coming down like crazy. They had to ski down the mountain. And they came to a grove of trees right in the middle of the path that they were skiing, and they had to go right or left. And Steve, Dr. Heim, went to the right. The girls went to the left. And as soon as Dr. Heim realized that, he wanted to get back to where the girls were, so he was skiing through the grove of trees. And all of a sudden, he, he, uh, he had a strange experience. He felt like something dreadful was happening. Everything became very quiet and very, very silent. And he could hear his breath. He could hear the snow underneath his skis. And he felt that he had to, to stop skiing and do something. So, so he stopped skiing. He had no idea what he was doing. He took off his skis. And then instead of walking toward where the girls were on the other side of the grove of the trees, he started to climb up the mountain in the opposite direction from where the girls were waiting, and they were still waiting for him. So he's climbing and walking and climbing and walking, still having this feeling that he's being called upon to do something that has life and death implications, and he has no idea what it is. In the meantime, the snow is coming down like crazy, and, he's, and, the, and it's still silent all around him. He can't understand why it's so quiet all around him. He came to a big pine tree. Now, there's five feet of powder snow in the, in the, in a, around a pine tree, in any tree, there's a thing called a tree well, where the, where the snow comes down to the base of the tree. So it's very shallow at the base of the tree, and then it goes up to five feet. And he's standing in front of this pine tree, still not knowing what he's doing, until he looked down, and then he knew why he was there. Under the tree was a body covered with snow. He brushed off the head. And the fellow looked like he was dead. He must have hit the tree. Uh, he had a gray face. He couldn't see that you know, he was breathing. But Dr. Heim is a trauma surgeon. What better person to come across a, a, a skier like this than a trauma surgeon? So he put his hand on the carotid artery in his neck, and he felt a pulse. He was alive. So he went into trauma mode, put his head down, uh, brushed the snow off, covered him with his jacket, started yelling for help, help. Uh, one of the last skiers down the mountain heard his cry for help, came to him. 
So what can I do? And he said, go on to the, you know, as soon as you get to a phone, call the ski patrol. About 20 minutes later, a snowmobile with a, pulling a gurney came up with the ski patrol. They loaded this unconscious hypothermic uh, skier onto this uh, gurney, took him down to a waiting ambulance at the lodge, and uh, took him off to, uh, to, the, to the hospital. In the meantime, Dr. Heim uh, was sh- shivering uh, because he had his jackets. He took his jackets off. And he put his jackets back on, made his way back to the girls who were still waiting on the other side, and they all skied down the, down, down the mountain. The next day, he called the uh, hospital to find out what happened to the skier, and they said, uh, he's, he's fine. He woke up. He's uh, perfectly fine. Wow. He did a wonderful job. They said splinting his broken leg in the field with a tree branch and some underclothes, and um, uh, everything uh, turned, out, turned out well. So... That was an experience that, you know, he could, it, it wasn't really a, um, a medical cure or anything like that, but it was an experience that he had that he just couldn't explain. And all he could say was that, you know, I was directed by someone from above. Right, and that's that's got to be the end result of that is you've got to feel like not only was it he was guided to find that individual, but almost like that individual's miraculous recovery was almost like his his reward for listening to that to that voice, for listening to that whatever was drawing him toward that person. Yes, yeah. It's interesting, too, that um, about two years before, Dr. Heim had an experience in the mountain very similar, where his father, who was cross-country skiing with him, arrested and had a heart attack. And Dr. Heim rushed him off. He's a real strong guy. He rushed him off, picked him up and carried him, rushed him off to a, uh, uh, a first aid station. And they did CPR for an hour, and he lost him. His father died. And Dr. Heim couldn't forgive himself for losing his father. He's used to saving people, not losing them. And he felt guilty that, that this was his fault. And when he found this skier on the mountain the second time, uh, that not only he was not only able to save the skier's life, but also he realized that this was he felt this was his second chance, and he he did save the skier, and he felt that this was God's way of of telling him that you know when a person's time is is up, his time is up, and uh, uh, he was given a second chance to realize that and actually save a life. It's uh, it's really fascinating when you can almost feel like you were, and, and this is something that I'm sure as medical professionals you go through every day, but to feel like, you, you know, you had a hand in essentially changing the fate of somebody, essentially taking what was supposed to be their destiny, and and it was your destiny to interact with them and to cross paths with them and to be able to alter the course of that. It's, it's a pretty powerful thing, and I can understand. You know, they always talked about how some doctors get a little bit of a God complex. You can understand that because yeah. you are altering the the fate of somebody's life, the course of somebody's yeah. life. You know, most of the time we deal with sore throats and diarrhea and, and things like that, but there, there are occasions when we run across an individual or uh, a family or something that we really can make a difference, and that's that's what what makes you go on and, and put up with the long hours and the, the troubles and so forth that that you that you really can make a difference. And I think occasionally we are helped by uh, God, by by a, uh, whatever you call that that force. Um, uh, you can call it whatever you want. Most of my doctors call it God. Uh, that that I think works through us on occasion. It works through everyone. But at the same time, though, you know, we we. Regular people, you know, lay people are talking about how they feel like they are challenged by God sometimes, and I'm sure medical professionals feel like they're challenged by God on quite a frequent basis. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I, I think I think you're right. 
Well, we're going to get more into this coming up. Uh, we do have to take a break in just a few moments uh, for the news. Uh, we do the network news here for a few minutes, and when we come back on the other side, we'll get more into the discussion with our guest, Dr. Scott Kolbaba, about his new book. It's called Physicians Untold Stories, and if you want to get the book, you can get that right on the website. You can go to physiciansuntoldstories.com to find out more about the good doctor, to find out more about the book, and to, to get some more you know, some of the stories that are shared there as well. But we're going to share some of those stories coming up in the next hour. We're going to talk about things like uh, near-death experiences. Uh, we're going to talk about things like visitations and, and people who come to help other people cross over and some of the other strange things that have come up in the course of the medical field over the years. Uh, but uh, just in like the two minutes that we have here, uh, Doctor, I do have one question that came up in the, in the chat room that I wanted to ask you. We were talking about medical intuition a few moments ago. And does it ever feel like sometimes like some things do you do just become intuitive because you've done them over and over again that you kind of can just tell what something might be that you you just get this feeling and you go with it oh sure and then you know that happens almost, almost all the time when you when you see a patient and you you talk with them and you get their history and do their exam uh you know you have an intuition you have a feeling about uh, what what the diagnosis is because you've seen it before and and we do that every day with virtually every patient but there are some situations where uh it seems to be more than and just uh, education and intuition, uh, and, and that's what, what we wrote about in the and, book. And even with that intuition, you know, that's just the beginning stage of things. You're still following up and doing all the testing to make sure that your intuition is correct. Oh, for sure. I mean, we have a, you know, you have a, a differential diagnosis when you see a person. A differential di- person comes in with chest pain. A differential diagnosis would be a heart attack, uh, blood clot in the lungs, uh, musculoskeletal things. Uh, you know, so there's a number of things that, you, that go through your mind in, in, the, in the differential diagnosis, and you have a, a hunch or intuition as to what, it, what the most likely thing is based on your experience. And, and so that's, that's, how we, that's how we diagnose uh, medical conditions all the time. All right, well, we'll get more into this coming up again in the next hour. We are going to take a break for the news. If you want to check out the doctor's website during the break, it is physiciansuntoldstories.com. Matt has it uh, up on the screen, uh, up on spookysouthcoast.com, and we have it uh, all up on our social media as well, so you can check it out for yourself. And when we come back in the next hour, you can also call in with any questions or stories that you want to share with us at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420, or in the chat room at spookysouthcoast.com, or you can tweet them to us using the hashtag SpookyLive or email as well, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. Many different ways to get involved with the show, but of course, we love to hear the sound of your voice. So 508-996-0500-877-996-1420 are the numbers to call in if you have a question for Dr. Kolbaba. When we come back with more Spooky South Coast coming up following the news, it's Saturday night, so you know it's time to be spooky. We'll be right back. Weisberg here, along with the asylum assassin, Matt Costa. Stephanie Burke is at Mount Washington right now with Strange Escapes. They are there for the Mount Washington event up there. Stephanie is using an actual Frank's box tonight. A real, like, Frank's box that Frank made himself. I'm pretty jealous of that. And they're having a good time up there. 
but we are having a good time here as well. And as I mentioned, uh, next week we will be at the Provincetown Paracon. Stephanie and I will be presenting together there. And we'll also be giving away a pair of tickets later on, maybe two, to the daytime Saturday portion of the Provincetown Paracon. And we'll be giving away some pairs later on in the week as well. All you have to do to win them during the week is when you follow Provincetown Paracon on social media, follow them on Facebook. That's the best way to do it. And take some of those Provincetown Paracon posts and share them. And tag me in them. Tag Tim Weisberg in them when you share them. And then on Wednesday night, I'm going to have a list of everybody that shared it and how many times they've shared it. And I'm going to write everybody's name down. And I'm going to cut, cut it all up. I'm going to put it into a hat. I'm going to go on Facebook Live. I'm going to mix around all the names. And I'm going to pull the winners out of the hat. So you literally have the chance to have your name pulled out of the hat to win tickets to the Provincetown Paracon. So between now and Wednesday night, the Wednesday night cutoff will be at uh, 8 p.m. Because then I should be done with all my work in the news department. And then we'll put all the names in the hat and we'll do it on, on Wednesday night at 8 p.m. So between now and then, share as many of those Provincetown Paracon Facebook posts. Tag me in them and you will be entered each time you will get an entrance to win those tickets to the Broadway Sound Paracon. But we'll also be giving away some tonight, so stay tuned to the show in its entirety because we'll have a trivia question coming up for you at the end of the program. And now we're going to get back into the discussion with our guest tonight, Dr. Scott Kolbaba. We are talking about his book, Physicians Untold Stories. And you can also check him out on the web as well. That is the name of the website as well, physiciansuntoldstories.com. If you want to go there and purchase the book and find out more, about the good doctor who is coming back with us now, and uh, and thank you for for holding during the news. I know that uh, doctors, you know, when when they're used to a very fast paced environment, and we we try to keep things pretty laid back here, but we have to take the break for the news. We have to let the people know about what's going on. So thank you for holding on, doctor. Totally understand, Tim. By the way, uh, my wife was born in New Bedford. Oh, really? Yes. That's pretty. Huh. That's pretty coincidental. And and uh, at St. Luke's Hospital. You know, this was a long time ago. I'm not sure what hospital it was, but uh, she, was, she was born there. We go back to Cape Cod every once in a while and, and drive through New Bedford. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that's Matt Costa, my co-host, and I were actually from the from Wareham, from the gateway to Cape Cod. So you oh, probably... my goodness. That's where, she, that's where she lived also, Wareham. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Small world. <laughs> it is. And so, but now you're out in the the Chicago area, right? That's, that's, yes, we are. Yeah. And and I know that uh, you know, just like we have in Boston uh, here, you know, you, there's a great medical community out in the Chicago area. A, a lot of groundbreaking research is done, and a lot yeah. of some of the top doctors in the country are located right there. Right. We have a number of medical schools here, and it's uh, quite a medical community. And I guess when you have that type of community, you know, it probably fosters a lot of, as we were talking earlier. You know, like-minded thinking, where a lot of doctors are are tuning out the fact that this stuff can happen, that there is this greater power at work. But as you said, you know, you started to hear some more of these stories. And obviously, whatever you've been, whatever the process was for collecting these, we'll get into a little bit. But since mm-hmm. the book has come out, and since you've been out doing media, have you had more doctors that have been coming up to you and sharing with you stories and saying, "Hey, I had something weird that happened." Yeah, there's some interesting things that have happened since the book has come out. The first thing that's happened is you know, the doctors that share their stories were a little anxious about whether they would be criticized by patients, by other doctors, and so forth. And just the opposite. They've been uh, heralded as, as um, you know, uh, uh, people that uh, have, have taken a, a, a lead in, in opening up the, the, the door between uh, 
patients and, and physicians and, and discussing spirituality. So, um, and then one of the doctors, interestingly, that wanted to be, remain anonymous, uh, the only one doctor wanted to remain anonymous in the book. And after we launched the book and he saw what um, a lot of the other doctors were getting, he said, I don't want to be anonymous anymore. <laughs> put, put my name in and let, let people know uh, who I am. So, uh, and then, then what's also happened is we've gotten a number of other doctors that have written to me or, or communicated with me about their stories, and they want to, you know, uh, come forward with, with uh, some amazing stories that they've had. See, I'm a, I'm a journalist by trade, and I've spent uh, a, in the last 11 years hosting the show, and I had to kind of ease into asking people about strange and unusual experiences. I've had to find a way to kind of ease into working it into conversations. And eventually I've reached the point now where, like, I have no problem just walking up to somebody I've just met and said, Hi, I'm Tim. Hey, you ever have any ghost experiences? I'm sure that it didn't work so well for you in, in trying to collect these stories for the book that you, you, you had to kind of broach the subject gently to a lot of doctors. And also it, it probably took a while to collect some of these stories. Yeah, you know, it took me about three and a half years to write the book. It was a, it was supposed to be a six month project, but I, I I I had a couple experiences myself, as I mentioned to you, and then a couple of the doctors just spontaneously came to me with with their stories. But what I did to collect the rest of the stories was uh, to hang out in the doctor's lounge, and, and the doctor's lounge has all kinds of wonderful things that attract doctors, like donuts and coffee and <laughs> and uh, things things like that. Occasionally, there's some good stuff like uh, oatmeal and fruit. And I would I would go to the doctor's lounge early in the morning, probably five five thirty or so in the morning. And then any doctor that would come into the doctor's lounge, I would uh, ask them uh, if they had any experiences that they couldn't explain medically. And uh, no one seemed to know exactly what I was talking about. So what I would frequently do is just tell them a story to give them an illustration of what I was looking for. And then they would say, "Oh yes, I, I've got this story." And and we talk a little bit about it because everyone's pretty busy in the morning trying to see patients before office hours and so forth. And then I would take their telephone number and call them uh, sometime that week and, and get the details of the story. And we'd go back and forth like that in, uh, for a number of sessions to get the story completely right. And, and then I, uh, when I finally finished the story, I'd send it to them and say, you know, proofread this, make sure that this is all completely accurate because it's such an amazing story. Uh, no one wants to exaggerate because... Uh, this story is, is phenomenal enough it's in itself. So that that's how I did that. And, and uh, again, I, there were lots of... I probably interviewed close to 200 doctors. Lots of doctors had stories. But, again, I picked out about 26 of the stories that I thought were the, were the most special that really touched my, touched my insides. And I put those in the book. <clears throat> And, and I'm, you know, with the book, you're looking for a variety of stories, but I'm sure as you were collecting these stories overall and collecting, you know, over 200 stories, there must have been some thematic elements that came up. What was probably the most common type of experience that doctors were having? You know, these were all very different experiences, and um, uh, I tried to avoid miracle cures. I have about one or two miracle cures in the book because I think those tend to be a little bit uh, boring uh, after a while. And, and the stories that I uh, collected were stories uh, that I thought were doctors were um, uh, touched by a divine hand, where they um, uh, had some experience that they just, it just defied uh, scientific explanation. And I think, you know, when you assemble a, a group of stories like this, you never know, uh, at least I didn't know, what the bottom line was, what the final uh, theme would be of the book. I just assembled these, these interesting and fascinating stories. And there are a couple of themes that I think that, that came out. One is um, a theme of love. 
uh, love seems to be from from the stories that I'm, I, I collected, uh, one of the most powerful forces in the universe. And love can transcend time and eternity and and uh, and everything. So uh, the love of, of family members was was a big theme. Um, I think the other theme was um, that there is something else out there. There's a force out there that guides us and helps us uh, to do the things that we, if we set our mind to do something, we will frequently, and doctors experience this, will frequently be guided and helped in strange and wonderful ways to accomplish those those incredible goals. And um, um, I think that one of the other themes was that, that uh, people that have passed, uh, friends and relatives that have passed, can sometimes uh, communicate with us and, and uh, uh, help us uh, in the... Um, the things that the, the good things that we're trying to, to accomplish. So those are some of the themes that that seem to come out in the book. Well, I notice, you know, in, in just talking with people myself, and, and as I had mentioned earlier in the show, one of the thematic elements of of literature and, and of early mythology that fascinated me was the idea of a psychopomp. These beings that would come and would ferry. Uh, the dead to their final destination. They'd be kind of the guiding hand that would lead people, whether it be to you know heaven or hell or, or the Greek mythology equivalents. It would be somebody whose job it was to ferry them to the other side. And I know that in talking with a lot of people who have been around loved ones who have passed in hospitals, you know, there's always reports of loved ones who have come back to help them, loved ones who have appeared to them as they're dying, seeing that white light, seeing that tunnel appear before them as, as they're breathing their final moments. And I wonder if there's ever any time when the patients are experiencing this, if the doctors are experiencing some sort of version of that phenomenon themselves at the same time. Well, you know, the, the patients report these kinds of things, and, and I've had a number of ER docs with, where, where you you find lots of people that have arrested or, or come back from a, a death experience, and, and it's in the literature uh, of, of the ER uh, physicians that, that this is not an uncommon thing that happens, and we've had a number of doctors uh, uh, give me stories about those, these kinds of things. I'm just trying to think of one, um, Fred Bohoffer is an uh, ER doc in our emergency room, and he had a case where a person, uh, a fellow in his 50s, uh, came in through the, uh, to the ambulance, uh, through an ambulance, uh, who arrested in the ambulance. And um, they were doing CPR. He had to shock them uh, back to life. And as soon as he administered the, the, the shock, uh, he, his cart started again. He was in ventricular fibrillation, uh, came back, uh, was awake for a while. Then as they wheeled him into the uh, ER, he arrested again. They shocked him one more time. Uh, and then, he, then he was okay for a little bit as they wheeled him into the into the room, the uh, heart room in the ER. He arrested again, uh, shocked him back, and, and then they administered medications and so forth that kept him from arresting. And when he came to and was was awake and, and reasonably alert, uh, Dr. Bohoffer noticed that he was unusually calm, and he didn't. He he said, you know, you know, you you just had some real serious things happen to you. Uh, you know, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm. I really feel very, very calm about the whole thing. And he said, when I, when I first arrested, uh, I, I saw my father. Uh, it was very much, uh, very lifelike, and it was uh, as if I could touch him. He came to me, and um, he just stood there. He didn't say anything. And then the second time I arrested, he was joined by my, my wife. And then uh, the third time, uh, my brother came, too. So there was my brother, my father, and my wife standing there, and, and they were... 
that just is so real that I, I couldn't believe it. And they, they were a very a calming influence on me, and I knew that I would be okay whatever happened to me. And uh, Dr. Bohoffer said, well, that's, that's you know, really nice, and, and I'm glad they provided some comfort to you. Will they be visiting you here in the hospital where you, where you, where you'll be in the intensive care unit for a little bit? And he said, no, because they've all died in the past. Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously, they had, I think, his impression was that they had come to, uh, from, from the other side to take this individual back had he not survived the, uh, the arrest. But he did, and he lived, and and, uh, and it was very calm because of the influence of his uh, deceased relatives. And Dr. Bohoffer said, I, I, you know, I've read this a lot in the, in the medical literature, that this thing is not unusual. This kind of thing happens all the time. Hmm. Well, I, I know that you know physicians will obviously study uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross for the five stages of grief and, and for that aspect right. of things, but from a paranormal perspective, a lot of us will look at her work with near-death experiences and the work of Dr. Raymond Moody. Are these theories, are these, are these stories that they discuss, is this something that the medical community talks about as well? Uh, yeah, we do. Um, and um, there are, um, uh, I mean, obviously there are stages of grief, but there are there are experiences that that uh, the doctors have had uh, with patients dying uh, that uh, are are really unusual and strange and and uh, we had um, uh, one doctor John John Saran who was a general internist who had a, a neighbor that was dying of colon cancer and um, when he um, uh, was near his near near terminal uh, he mentioned to his wife that I, I'm, I, I'm seeing uh, three girls dancing in, in the living room, and his wife didn't see them, and she said, well, tell me about them, and she said, they're all dressed, he said, they're all dressed in white, they're dancing, they're very young girls, and uh, seem to be very happy, and, and, you know, she suddenly realized what was going on here, and, and she said to him, you know, these are, these are angels that have come to take you back, and uh, he accepted that, he um, Said I'll take care of. He said to her, "I'll take care of things on the other side if you take care of things on the on the earth for uh, for our family." And she said, I, "I would do that." And he then closed his eyes and and, uh, and died. And so uh, she was convinced that uh, those these were angels that that had come to uh, take him back. I think that that's a comforting thought for a lot of people to to think that there is uh, someone who is going to be there for us obviously we want our loved ones our living loved ones around us when we die but it's still the scary experience of going on to some unknown so it's it's beneficial when somebody can come back and be there for us so i'm not surprised that a lot of people see loved ones around them or angelic beings around them as they're passing the the white light has always been something that i've been fascinating with when when people have near-death experiences in their report seeing this light and mm-hmm. you know as, as was mentioned in the chat room some people think it's you know uh, indicative of the birth canal and giving an argument to reincarnation but i have a friend who was uh, who actually had died and they were able to bring him back, but during his experience, his death experience, it was not a bright light in loved ones. It was actually very negative, very traumatic, and, and he felt like he was essentially going to be tortured for eternity in just a few minutes that he was no longer with us. Do you get reports of that from from people who have passed, and is there any kind of physical sign uh, that they are going through something? When I know, obviously, when somebody dies you're working on reviving them but is there any kind of physical sign that you can see that they've been through something traumatic in those moments um 
Well, you know, a uh, cardiac arrest um, and resuscitation and so forth is, is pretty traumatic. Most people, when they go through that, are, are really unconscious and not aware of what's, what's happening to them. Um, but um, I, in talking with some of the, uh, uh, the doctors that deal with death and dying all the time, the palliative care doctors, they are pretty uh, positive that, that when people are dying, that they almost universally have positive experiences. They have, uh, uh, you know, good, hopeful uh, experiences. And, and, you know, obviously uh, there have been books written about uh, near-death experiences where people were uh, uh, traumatized and, and they, they had a very bad experience. But the vast majority of people that are dying uh, from the people that, that deal with this all the time, the palliative care doctors, tell me that their, their experiences are positive, they uh, uh, either see loved ones or, or have some feeling that they're going to be, meet their loved ones, and, and it's a positive experience and not a negative experience. So, I mean, let's just say you're going into cardiac arrest and, and uh, you know, you don't have a pulse and the doctors are trying to bring you back. The brain is still active, though, at that time, right? For, for a little bit of time, would, it, would, would yes. the brain instantly... So you would... So these things could be something happening in the subconscious they could be they could be a dream essentially that's happening uh to the people while they're going through this physical stress exactly and and you know when the brain loses blood supply it doesn't die immediately and and there are some some physical things that can happen such as a bright light and so forth that that are that can be explained by a lack of blood to the brain so some of these things can be actually physical phenomenon that happens to the brain uh when a person is is dying but when they're brought back, uh, then, then you know, everything returns to normal. But that, that can, you know, so it can be explained physically also. But I'm sure that you've also collected stories and, and heard stories of people who were out of their bodies and can tell you about things that were happening in the room when they were in this type of a state. We have. And, and there was one, one of the first uh, stories that I heard, as a matter of fact, one of the first stories that actually got me really interested in, in collecting these stories was uh, was an experience that Dave Mokel had, uh, one of my orthopedic surgical friends. And I was on the making rounds on the, on the floor, and Dave literally ran up to me and said, Scott, I've got this amazing story to tell you. And I said, go ahead, Dave. And he said, well, I can't tell until you hear it because someone might hear me. I said, okay, let's go into a patient <laughs> room where there were no, no patients. We closed the door. And he said that we had a mutual patient, Mary is her name, and Mary was going for an ankle surgery. Dave is an orthopedic surgeon doing the surgery, and when they administered the antibiotic to her, she arrested because of a reaction, an anaphylactic reaction to the antibiotic. No pulse, no respirations, eyes closed, no response to pain. She was she was uh, dead basically. They called a code in the OR, and when they call a code, everyone rushes in from the ORs around to try to help out. And one of the fellows that came in was a tech with unusually red hair underneath his uh, uh, surgical cap, and he started to do CPR. Well, Mary is a real big woman, and, and uh, he wasn't doing adequate uh, CPR. Dave Mokel, who was feeling for a pulse, couldn't feel a pulse, so he asked him to stop doing CPR, and he would take over. Well, after a couple uh, times of asking, uh, the individual wouldn't move away. Dave just gave him a push, because in a code situation, that's a life-and-death situation. He was in charge. He had to make sure that things were done as, as properly as possible. So he pushed the guy aside, he stumbled away, Dave took over doing CPR, and after administering some medications, uh, Mary came around again and uh, and lived, and, and she didn't wake up until the next day. But when she was leaving the hospital about four days later, after the cardiologist had cleared her and everyone else had, had signed off, 
she uh, and he was telling her about some uh, instructions to take care of her ankle. She said, "Thank you for saving my life, Dr. Mokel." And he said, "Well, it's just a team effort." And he's a very humble guy. It was a team effort. Everyone pitched in, and she said, "No, no, I saw you actually push that guy away with the red hair and start my CPR." Wow. By that point, Dr. Mokel got some weak knees and had to sit down because he was thinking, like, how can I explain this? And she, she mentioned multiple, multiple little minutiae of the events that happened in the room. Dr. Mokel paging me, for example, looking at the door to see if I was coming. Uh, other people, that were, where they were standing and so forth. And he said, well, how did, you, how did this happen? And she said, well, I, when I arrested, I rose. My, my something uh, transported me to the top of the, to the uh, room, and I was able to look down on myself and see everything that was happening in, in great detail. And they've asked her a few specific questions, and she was able to answer those questions, and he just had no explanation for it. And she said, when I was, when I was there, my grandmother, who had died 20 years before or so, came to me and told me that it was not my time to go, that if I was a good and, and honest person, that, I would, that she would save up a special place for her in heaven. And uh, but but this was not her time, and she'd have to go back. And, and then she did go back. And uh, uh, you know, it's interesting that that Mary was really not a very nice person <laughs> before her arrest. Afterwards, she was the kindest and most gentle person <laughs> in the world, and a joy to to see in the in the exam room, and a joy to to be associated with. She didn't live very long. She lived probably three or four more years because of multiple medical conditions. But um, that was one of the stories that really got me interested in, in asking doctors about uh, their experiences and, and really was an unbelievable experience. She was a mutual patient of myself and Dr. Mokel. Well, I've had the opportunity uh, over the last few years to work with a television show that investigates abandoned uh, asylums and abandoned hospitals as one of the, you know, as the, the crux of what they do. And right. one of the stories that I've always shared with him, one of the theories that I've always shared with him is, yeah, a lot of people die in hospitals, but there's a lot of positive energy that's expelled in hospitals as well, and, and for every death, there's a birth, and for every life that goes, there's one that comes in, and that's all going to leave some kind of an energetic imprint in these locations. So it's not always necessarily just the people who have died that cause hospitals to be haunted, but have you experienced stories and, and heard stories of, of what could only really amount to being a ghostly experience in a hospital or a medical facility? Um, let me think about that. Um, you know, one of the, one of the uh, uh, most positive experiences that, that uh, uh, I can remember was a, a story about a, a little grandmother, a Grandma O'Hanlon. Uh, Jack Heitzler uh, is, a, is an obstetrician. He actually delivered two of our kids, and his wife, uh, Joan, was delivering their fifth child, and Grandma Hanlon was a midwife. She was uh, an elderly midwife. And as Joe was delivering the baby, Grandma Hanlon walked into the room and literally, uh, with two obstetricians there, herself saved Joan's life. Let me go back and tell you a little bit about Grandma Hanlon. She was uh, from Ireland. Uh, her, husband, her father sent her back because there was a big, uh, you know, brouhaha with uh, Catholics and, and Protestants and, and the her um, father was, was uh, hiding priests in secret rooms in their house, so he thought it was a little dangerous for her to be there, so he sent her to the United States. Where she learned to be a midwife. She was uh, kind of the spiritual leader of the family. She delivered lots of babies. 
She uh, would also work for nothing if the family couldn't afford her. She'd give money to the poor, and um, she was quite a quite a, uh, a, a spiritual uh, force in the family. When she became older, she uh, couldn't uh, deliver babies anymore, and she went to live with Joan and her mother, Joan Heifster and her mother. And when Joan was a little girl, she always used to say, if I could make it to Grandma Hanlon's lap if I was in trouble, I know I'd be safe. And so uh, when Joan was delivering their fifth child, uh, uh, she had delivered the baby, and then afterwards there was a, a fair amount of pain, and they had to do some procedures on her that caused some pain. And so one of the drugs that they administered in those days was a drug called Trilene. Trilene is administered by a mask. It's a, it's a gas. It puts a woman asleep so that she's totally unconscious, and then they are able to do their procedures, obviously. So uh, Joan was ready to, to get the trilene mask and, and to help with her pain. When Grandma Hanlon stepped into the room, dressed in a little polka dot dress with a white sweater vest and a, her hair up, a white hair up in a bun and her old lady shoes, and she stood at the foot of the bed and shook her head. She said, no, the, the Joan shouldn't use the trilene. So Joan Heitzler pushed it away, and... Um, uh, she uh, 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 it was, was suffered you know, some of the pain, but was able to, to tolerate it. But no one realized that Joan had eaten a large meal about uh, an hour before she went into labor. And, and about a minute after she pushed the trilene away, she vomited the entire meal. Now, had she been unconscious with the mask on, that vomitus would have been into her lungs, and she might have died from that or had a serious uh, complication of uh, uh, aspiration pneumonia. And, and Joan said she, she made it to Grandma Hanlon's lap one last time, transcending time and eternity. Their love, their great love for each other transcended time and eternity because Grandma Hanlon had died 22 years before that. Mm. See, I, I, I don't know. For me, I would think that the last place spirits would want to hang around would be the hospital, unless for some reason they're trapped there. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's part of, you know, with, with what, the ghost asylum program part of the reason they would go to these places is trying to figure out why they would be trapped there but i feel like too you are going to encounter because we were talking before about people's loved ones coming and visiting them and i wish my usual co-host stephanie burke was here because she's a psychic medium and she can experience these things firsthand and she could give us a little more insight but i i feel like when people's loved ones are going to be around them all the time you're going to happen upon them in these places but some of these hospitals have spirits who are there all the time and and who actually will influence the living that are there i'm sure that it must come up from time to time amongst medical professionals at least even on a on a halfway joking basis you know that you know when we're here alone the lights go off and on on their own there must be some some different types of weird phenomena that have happened to you or some of your colleagues um you know uh, some strange things happen we haven't experienced that much. One of the things I can think about, though, was an uh, individual, one of my own patients, that uh, uh, had a heart transplant, and he lived for quite a while with his heart transplant and finally, finally died. And his family was uh, sitting around the living room talking about uh, you know, how, how much they loved him and what influence he had in the family and, and so forth. And, and they were, take, you know, they were take, telling all good things about him, and, and they were laughing that you know, he would love to to be there to, to hear all these good things that everyone was saying about him. And uh, one of the f- uh, family members said, and I wonder, you know, uh, I wonder if he could hear us now. All of a sudden, uh, there was a surge of electricity in the, in the lo- lamp that was in the living room uh, for about five seconds, and then it went back to the normal, uh, uh, normal light. 
and uh, the family decided that uh, that was uh, his way of, of saying that he, he was there and uh, he was listening to, to that conversation. I know that in these days it's different. You know, in modern times you probably have a lot of patients that come in who have already self-diagnosed themselves through WebMD and, you know, looking symptoms up on the Internet and they think that they have an idea of what they have, whether they're right or they're wrong, but at least they're coming in and they're already kind of having an idea in their head from what they've read on the internet or what they've seen on TV. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have anybody that came in and just kind of intuitively knew what was wrong with them? That, you know, they it seemed like maybe they were diagnosing themselves early with something or they just came in and, and seemed to have some sort of precognitive ability to know what was wrong with them? You know, uh, these days medicine's gotten pretty sophisticated and there's lots of lay literature about uh, symptoms and so forth. And it's not unusual that I will see people in the, in the office and they'll say, I think I've got this or that condition. And sometimes they're spot on. It's, uh, it's really uncanny. Uh, many times they're, they're way off. <laughs> but, right. but it's not unusual for a person to do some research and, uh, and, and diagnose themselves. I can't think of a case right now where, where a person had a um, premonition of something uh, uh, that they had that they, that they came in with. I've had doctors that have had premonitions of uh, illnesses in patients, uh, but but not so many patients. And I, I the the one that's most uh, uh, striking to me was uh, Dr. Rich Jorgensen, is a uh, uh, general surgeon, and he uh, uh, one of his good friends was a appellate judge, and uh, one night he had a, an amazing dream that his uh, friend had, had died, and that he was laying in a coffin in a in a uh, funeral uh, home. And he, it was a vivid dream. He saw him uh, uh, dead and, and, and died of a heart attack. So the next day he called him up and he said, you know, I, I hate to say this, but I had this vivid dream. And, you know, most dreams, when you wake up in the morning, they're gone. Right. Uh, you, you, you forget about the dream. And, but this one stayed with him a long time. And he called the, uh, his, his judge friend up and he said, listen, I had this crazy dream that you were, that you were dead. And the judge laughed, you know, as the, what, what can you do when a person says that? And he said, I'd like you to get a physical. If you could just get a physical, it would make me happy. And so the judge agreed. He had had a physical for a long time. And so he went to see a doctor. Uh, the doctor did all the important tests, and everything was perfectly normal. He said, don't worry about uh, dying of a heart attack. You're, gonna, you're perfectly fine. Don't listen to this Dr. Jorgensen because uh, he's, you know, he's, and doesn't know. He hasn't examined you, and uh, you're going to be fine. Well, uh, when the judge talked to Dr. Jorgensen, Dr. Jorgensen got this sick feeling in his chest again that, that you know, this was something that uh, he felt very strongly about. And he said, you know, I really want you to go to one of my cardiologists and, and have them see you because I still feel that there's something going on here that, that the, your doctor hasn't found. And the judge very reluctantly did that. They did a stress test. They did some other tests and found ultimately that he had end-stage coronary disease. He had a, what's called a widowmaker plus other coronary disease, which uh, usually uh, gives you a life expectancy of less than six months. Uh, in the, they put him in the hospital. He had bypass surgery the next day because they were afraid to wait too long, and that literally saved his life. He had uh, some really, really serious coronary disease. And so and Dr. Jorgensen... Uh, you know, uh, felt that this dream was uh, was really something that uh, led him to to save his life. I mean, that's that's very interesting because, you know, we 
talk a lot with psychics, people who have psychic abilities here on the show, and as I mentioned, my co-host does, and we talk about how when they pick up on something medical, you know, it's very much a slippery slope for them to, to mention what it is they're picking up on, that yeah. usually the way they try and do it is they'll say, uh, listen, I really feel like you should go see a doctor. Something that I'm picking up something about your chest. And even mm-hmm. though they might have a, a vision of this person having a heart attack or something, you know, they just try and keep it very generic because they don't want to come into any problems of predicting illnesses and, and, and taking running the risk of giving somebody the thought in their head that they have something wrong with them when they don't. Uh, but, but it does happen where sometimes people do see a psychic and the psychic will tell them, you have cancer, you need to go find a doctor. And I'm sure that that's probably come across, you know, your your desk a few times that that's happened, where somebody's come in and told you that, you know, a psychic told them that they had this, or or somebody told them that they had uh, a feeling that they had this. Um, well, you know, uh, and getting back to Dr. Jorgensen again, he stuck his neck out to to come up with with you know his, his strong insistence that the judge yeah. see these doctors, and and had he been wrong, and that the judge had all these these pretty invasive tests, including angiograms, he, he would he would have felt terrible. But he had this he had such a strong feeling that something was wrong that he that he had to speak up. Uh, I've I've seen patients I don't think I've seen a patient that has had a psychic tell them uh, that that they had something wrong. Right, because at least but with Doctor Jorgensen, I mean he has the cachet to, to when you when he says something it, it it's coming from a medical opinion. No matter how he came about the feeling and the information, you right. know that he has that background. It's something totally different when somebody who doesn't even know what they're talking about says, I have a feeling that you have cancer. Yeah. And and um you know, people will come in with with uh, feelings that that there's something seriously wrong with them, and and uh, you know, I'm not sure it's whether it's um, uh, a, a uh, you know some of the hormones that are released by the cancer or, or whatever. We we had a we had a doc um, uh, surgeon that um, was operating on an individual uh, for a, a chest lesion, and she said to him, "I'm going to die today." And uh, he said, "No, no, we're going to we're going to you know do a surgery. You're going to be just fine. Um, and uh, some minor surgery. We're going to take a little spot out of your lung, and and uh, it's not a, a very big procedure." And she said, "No, no, I want to thank you for all you've done for me. Uh, I want to make sure that you understand that this is not your fault. That I'm 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 going to die today." And he kind of you know blew it off a little bit, and and uh, she went into surgery. Uh, during surgery, uh, she arrested. They couldn't get her heart going, and indeed she died. That surgeon was so spooked by that experience that any time anyone mentions to him again that they think they're going to have a complication or they're going to die, he cancels the surgery. Mm. And he's done that a number of times uh, right the day of surgery. And so that kind of thing happens, and I'm not sure how you can explain it, but uh, that happens to, to, to surgeons occasionally. In situations like that, and sometimes you know us patients were just really totally wrong. <laughs> like for years, yeah. I, I I was I would experience headaches, and I couldn't explain why. And they started to get to the point where they got really bad, and I was convinced that I had a, a brain tumor because my uncle had died of brain cancer at a young mm-hmm. age. And you know, here I am in my twenties, thinking you know this is the same path I'm going down. And right. I was afraid to see a doctor over it. And I finally went to an eye doctor just to kind of dip my toes in the medical waters and found out yeah. I just needed glasses. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that happens all the time. Right. You know, so that some of those things that people think uh, that I've got something serious going on uh, are, are totally unfounded. No, that's, that's very true. 
So uh, I, I can tell you that I have zero medical intuition for myself, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> some, sometimes when I go to the doctor, I'm way off base with what I think it is, and sometimes when it's serious, I'm like, well, I'll just wait and see what happens. So you never know wh- which one's right. So always trust the professionals. Right. So as you're getting these stories and as you're collecting these stories for the book and, and people are starting to share them with you, uh, it probably eventually got to the point, though, where you didn't have to ask them anymore and people were just coming and sharing with you. How did you discern what was, you know, were there any that were just too fantastical to believe? Were there any that you're like, I couldn't put this in the book because nobody would ever believe that? You know, I went to people that I knew. Uh, I've, I've known these doctors, most of these doctors, for a very long time. So I, I I know what kind of people they are, and there were a couple doctors that had uh, really phenomenal stories that I knew. Uh, I'm not going to mention their names, but I knew these doctors were not uh, up and up, and and would tend to exaggerate a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I I didn't include any of those stories in the book because I was I, I just wanted to make sure that these were straight arrow kind of doctors that that uh, uh, didn't want to exaggerate uh, at all. And um, so, yeah, I, I heard some some fantastic stories that uh, that I didn't think, uh, considering the source, I didn't think they were appropriate for the book at all. And and you know the stories in the book are fantastic enough, um, and and they're from these uh, ordinary routine doctors that have no reason to make up uh, uh, in, in these amazing stories. And and, and actually. Uh, they really stuck their neck out in telling these stories for because they were afraid that they might be criticized for, for having these experiences. Well, we are talking with our guest, Dr. Scott Kolbaba. The website is physiciansuntoldstories.com. That is also the name of the book. If you have any questions, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Those are the numbers to call in. You can also share your questions in the chat room at SpookySouthCoast.com as well, or email them SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, or on Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive. We did talk a little bit, Doctor, in the first hour about accepting the idea of a higher power, and and do you feel like with collecting these stories and with the people that you've talked to and and sharing these stories, is it more of the fact, are you kind of just looking at this now as much as you have this education and as much as you have all this experience in working in medicine, do you see yourself as kind of just a a tool for this greater being to uh, be able to take care of people? Well, you know, I, I think doctors and, and my, myself uh, included, uh, just, you know, this is this is our work. Uh, we see people every day with sore throats and colds and so forth. And I don't think uh, I don't think we're helped necessarily by a divine power for those kinds of things. But but I think we are uh, touched by a divine hand uh, more than more than we realize. And and again, it's not for every patient. I, I, I and and I can think of cases where. You, know, you go through a whole day and you see uh, some ordinary routine things, and and I don't think anything is, has uh, I don't feel anything that's 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 made a uh, influence on me, but but there are cases where I'm recognizing more and more that um, you know maybe maybe that hunch I had was more than just a little hunch. My my partner uh, has a has has a strong feeling about that. Dr. Bourne is my partner. And he's had cases where, he, one, one case, for example, he was clearing a patient for surgery for uh, uh, an orthopedic surgeon for total joint surgery. And he, uh, after he did the exam and physical and so forth, he had this little 
naggy voice in the back of his head saying his guy needs a stress test. And uh, he, uh, he, he tells me that, you know, he's had that uh, experience enough that he knows when, when he hears this little naggy voice, whatever it is, whether it's a divine thing or just from his experience, he acts on it. And he called the individual up and he said, you need a stress test. Well, the guy was a little hesitant to have it done, but he finally agreed. And, and sure enough, the stress test was very abnormal. He ended up with a bypass surgery before his, his uh, uh, main hip surgery. And that's basically saved his life. So uh, we do have these things that happen to us that you can't quite explain. And, and uh, But they don't happen with every patient, for but, sure. But even then, even the routine stuff still has an impact on that person's life and still has an impact on on the course of the direction of their life. So in a way, you're still adjusting what fate was. You know, like if fate made them fall out of a tree and break their leg, then you're coming in there as a tool of fate to reset that leg and to get them on the path of being healthy instead of being somebody that has to, say, walk with a limb for the rest of their life. So it might seem like it's mundane, but in the end, it's still it's still being a tool of some sort of greater plan. Uh, you know, I... And, and sometimes we forget about that. When I visit other doctors for various things, I've had a, a neck surgery in the past, and I'm always amazed at the skill of the doctors that, that I have seen personally and the ability to go in with a little tiny scope and into the back of my neck and remove a, a part of a disc and, and basically cure a significant problem I was having with numbness and weakness in my arm. Um, it, it, it's... Um, uh, it's, it's, it's truly uh, amazing to me, even in the, in the business, to have that kind of thing happen. And it's uh, very rewarding and, and uh, very reassuring. And, and I've noticed uh, on the website, physiciansuntoldstories.com, it mentions uh, that, you know, you've received an award from the Mayo Clinic Alumni Association. It seems like the medical community has embraced this book. Do you feel that learning about these stories, about these type of different types of incidents that you cover in the book, do you feel like it would be beneficial for uh, up-and-coming medical professionals to learn these stories as part of their training? Should should part of the, the, the course of study be to take a course in some of the things that might happen to you when you're working in this field, such as these? Yeah, well, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is, is to have people be aware that these things happen and that to, to pay attention for them and, and to actually use them to uh, count on, on uh, you know, being helped in some of your diagnoses. And so, and also then to be able to talk with uh, patients, that doctors should be able to talk with patients about spiritual matters that, that uh, may result in, in healing uh, that takes place without medication some, in some cases. So, yes, that, that's, that was one of the purposes of writing the book, that, that uh, I was hoping doctors would, would uh, learn more about the spiritual side of medicine. And in the final few moments that we have of the show, I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up. And I know you're probably expecting me to mention the Affordable Health Care Act, but I'm actually going to mention the the fact that you are an award-winning pumpkin grower. And my, my co-host, Matt Costa, is actually very impressed with people that can grow large pumpkins. So I saw that in your bio, and I was like, well, that's definitely something that, you know, you have to have uh, a little bit of a, a, a metaphysical touch to be able to grow some of these mega pumpkins. Well, we, we've done some strange things in our lives, and one of the things, uh, you know, my, my friends accuse me of, of uh, doing things in a big way, and we won, uh, there's a local uh, uh, contest here, it's called the Sycamore Pumpkin Festival, and it's one of the, one of the largest festivals in the state, interestingly, and we won that uh, two years running with our largest pumpkin. Um, we also have a large family, seven kids, I'm not sure where they came from. Uh, we have a large dog, a Newfoundland, 142 pounds, 
So uh, we we try to do things in a big way in our in our family. Well, that makes sense. You need large pumpkins because that's a lot of people that want pumpkin pie. So <laughs> that's for sure, and, the, and that provides a lot of pumpkin pie, pumpkin soup, and whatever. And I know that you tease a little bit in uh, in the about the author page that there could be a second version of the book, but I'm assuming that you've you've been collecting enough stories that there there has to be a volume two coming somewhere in the works. Yeah, I'd like to do another another cha- uh, volume of of stories. I, I I'm thinking, uh, you know, doctor stories. I'm collecting a number of doctor stories, and nurses have a, a ton of stories. Uh, also, they're really in in the trenches in the hospitals, and they see stuff. I think sometimes more than doctors do that are that are uh, unexplainable. So. I'd like to do a, a nurse book also. Just, I mean, just really quickly, do you feel like there's less of a uh, apprehension about sharing the stories amongst nurses than there is amongst doctors? I, I think there is. I think uh, uh, they don't feel that uh, uh, the potential criticism from patients that would then avoid the practice of, of, of uh, that individual. So nurses don't have a practice of their own in most cases. So. I think uh, there's that that uh, concern that if I if I come up forward with these stories, patients are going to avoid me because they'll think I'm a, a crazy doctor, for example. All right, well, Dr. Scott Kolbaba, we thank you for joining us. We look forward to talking with you when the next book comes out, and uh, and thank you very much for sharing this topic that you know was previously so taboo, but now we can get it out there, and now we can have people actually discussing it. Thanks, Tim. It was a pleasure. All right, you have a great night. We'll talk soon. Thanks. That, again, is Dr. Scott Kolbaba. His website, physiciansuntoldstories.com. That is also the website. Uh, the name, it's the website, and it's the name of the book. So you can go to the website, and you can get the book there. You can also get it wherever else books are sold. I highly recommend picking it up. It's very eye-opening, and it'll certainly make you think, too. It'll get you in the mindset a little bit of what medical professionals go through when treating us, and, and that they have to actually be willing to let down their guard to accept some of these stories as well. So a fascinating discussion, and uh, certainly something that I look forward to discussing again in the future, and we would love to hear your personal stories about. Shoot us an email, spookycrew at spooky South Coast. If you've ever had a strange and unusual paranormal experience related to medicine, whether you be a doctor or a nurse or a patient or what have you. So in the final moment that we have of the show, we do want to give away a pair of tickets to the Provincetown Paracon, ProvincetownParacon.com. If you want to get your tickets, I mentioned earlier in the show how you can win them from me on social media later on in the week. So stay tuned to my social media page into the Provincetown Paracon Facebook page uh, if you want to get involved with that. But I will ask this question, and the number is 508-996-0500 or 877-996-1420 if you want to win. And the question I'm asking, we mentioned Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and we mentioned about the five stages of grief, and we mentioned about her work with near-death experiences. So I just want to know, what is the name of the seminal work that she had that influenced the medical community on this topic. What is the name of that book that she wrote that became the standard bearer for helping physicians deal with death? And what is that book that also, same, that same book also led to her with this research into near death experiences? So if you can call in with the name of that book, 508 996 0500, the first person to do so will win a pair of tickets to the daytime Saturday event at Provincetown Paracon. And that's why we won't be here next week. There will be no show, but we will talk to you the week after that. Stay tuned to my Facebook page to win those more tickets. And until next week, for Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, for Chris, I'm Tim. Stay spooktacular.